Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 116, Space Shuttle Flight 45, STS-42. Discovering on Discovery. Last time, we talked about the flight of Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-44. OV-104 and its crew of six deployed a satellite dedicated to looking for missile launches and nuclear blasts. The mission was a complete success despite a faulty inertial measurement unit forcing an early landing. If you feel shortchanged, don't worry, we'll be tacking an extra day onto today's mission. As we open on today's episode, I want you to picture in your mind's eye a white space plane sitting on the launch pad. The vehicle is fueled and ready for liftoff, despite the less than hospitable weather conditions. The snow flurry surrounding the launch pad may have resulted in more than a few raised eyebrows around NASA, but they were nothing that the spacecraft couldn't handle. The systems looked good, and at the end of a long countdown, computer commands were issued, rocket engines ignited, and the vehicle blasted away into a 51.6 degree inclination orbit. On board, all is quiet and dark as the spacecraft completes first one, and then another trip around the world, before returning to a runway not far from where it lifted off. Time to chalk up another successful mission for the space shuttle, right? <laughs> not quite. What I just described was not a flight of NASA's space transportation system, but rather the only flight of the Buran, a reusable space plane developed by the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. Buran's name translates to blizzard, which was appropriate considering that its only liftoff took place during the type of snowstorm that is so common in its home country. At first glance, the spacecraft looks identical to our own space shuttle. This is not hugely surprising. For one thing, physics is physics, and things have to be shaped a certain way to do a certain job. But there was also more than a little copying and espionage going on. Look closer, though, and differences start to pile up. For one thing, in place of two solid rocket boosters strapped onto the sides of the external fuel tank, Buran had four liquid-powered boosters. And instead of the propellant feeding through the belly of the orbiter to reusable engines on the back of the spacecraft, it went to disposable engines at the bottom of the tank itself. Why am I talking about the Buran? Because while the spacecraft only flew one time, with no crew on board, no functional life support system, and with no software running on the displays, it played a not insignificant role in an event that took place between our previous flight and STS-42. On December 26, 1991, a little more than three years after Buran flew, the Soviet Union fell. Spooked by NASA's space shuttle and the potential military applications, the Soviet Union had started a crash program to make their own version of the orbiter. Crash programs take a lot of money, and the USSR was not on the most secure financial footing. Buran probably wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was certainly one of them. And with that, the Cold War boogeyman A number one that had set the space race into motion in the first place was gone. Okay, they weren't completely gone. There was still Russia and a bunch of countries that used to be part of the USSR, but the dynamic had definitely changed. Getting into the full reasons for and ramifications of the fall of the Soviet Union is well outside the scope of this podcast and outside my own knowledge of history. But it's important to bring up because it will exert a strong influence on the future of spaceflight. Cooperation between the United States and Russia became more possible, and in some cases, it became a matter of national security. With the fall of the Soviet Union, a collapse of Russia's space program was on the table. And if that happened, you'd suddenly have a bunch of people out of work. People who knew how to build powerful vehicles that could deliver complex machinery with pinpoint accuracy. 
people who might be willing to look for work in countries that the United States government would prefer did not have powerful vehicles that could deliver complex machinery with pinpoint accuracy. So how will this dramatic shift in the geopolitical landscape affect our little slice of history? Stay tuned. Today we'll be talking about STS-42, the first shuttle flight of 1992. 1992 was looking to be a pretty busy year for NASA human spaceflight. By the time we'll be watching the ball drop again, we'll have another eight shuttle missions under our collective belt. That flight rate is only tied by 1997, and only surpassed by the nine flights of 1985. But speaking of belts, it was also the beginning of a little belt tightening. If you were to look at NASA's budget over time, in either inflation-adjusted dollars, or as a percentage of the federal budget, it would be apparent that we're actually just past the top of a mini-peak. Obviously, there was an enormous peak in funding in the mid-1960s, as NASA was given the task of landing on the moon before the end of the decade, but it crashed pretty hard after that. By 1975, it had fallen from around 4.5% of the federal budget to around 1%, and was slowly decreasing. In 1988, it started to go up again, peaking in 1991, and then beginning a long, slow decline from there. I believe that increase is associated with a push for space station freedom, but if I'm being totally honest, I'm not really sure, since I did not want to dig around a bunch of old budget documents. These days, NASA receives about half a percent of the federal budget. In terms of human spaceflight, the shuttle program and its 25,000 contractors had its budget reduced by about 10% and the new director of the Kennedy Space Center, some guy named Bob Crippen, says he knows us, has put out the decree that Kennedy would be reducing the contractor force by 20% over the next five years. I don't think this squeeze on the shuttle program is necessarily bad. I don't have the sort of data or expertise to make that call. And sometimes being forced to work inside of constraints leads to increased creativity and efficiency. But I'm betting that it's not great especially as NASA will soon be juggling both the shuttle program and the nascent International Space Station. But long-term budgetary analysis can wait. We've got a shuttle mission to fly. The crew for today's flight is unusually international, in a sort of preview of the ISS era. We've got Americans, we've got a Canadian, and we've got a German. We almost had a Mary Cleave, who was originally scheduled to fly on this mission, but she decided to leave the astronaut program to work at the Goddard Space Flight Center on Earth observation satellites. She was trained as an environment engineer, and her personal observations from orbit had convinced her that not enough attention was being paid to humanity's impact on our home planet, so she left to apply her expertise towards trying to help solve the problem. Commanding the flight was Ron Grabe, who will be joining us for his third trip into low Earth orbit. We last saw him flying as the pilot of STS-30, which sent the Magellan probe off to investigate Venus. We'll see him one more time, since this is his third of four flights. Joining Grabe up front was our pilot for this flight, Steve Oswald, who also went by Oz. Stephen Oswald was born on June 30th, 1951 in Seattle, Washington. He earned a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from the U.S. Naval Academy and headed off to the Navy. The Navy taught him how to fly, and fly he did, piloting A-7s on and off of the aircraft carrier USS Midway for two years. He graduated from the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School and flew as a test pilot for both the A-7 and the F-A-18. He put that F-A-18 experience to use on another aircraft carrier, the USS Coral Sea, serving as a flight instructor and catapult officer. He applied to be an astronaut in 1980, but just missed the final cut. 
He tried again in 1984, this time as a civilian test pilot since he had left the Navy, and again was not selected. Hoot Gibson convinced him to take a job at NASA as an instructor pilot and to try again the following year, and it's a good thing that he did since Oswald was selected as an astronaut in June of 1985. This is his first of three flights before he heads off to become one of the big wigs at NASA HQ. Sitting directly behind Oswald was Mission Specialist 1, Norm Thaggard, who I promised not to mix up with Bill Thornton again. We last saw Thaggard flying with Mission Commander Ron Grabe on STS-30. This flight was a big one for Thaggard, not just because it was his fourth, but because he was the first to serve in a new astronaut role, Payload Commander. This role was made to recognize that with increasingly complex payloads flying, it was important to assign mission specialists to them early. But there was no reason for the pilot crew to spend years ushering payloads to fruition. After all, from their perspective, the missions don't change too much. Sure, the particulars change, but at the end of the day, flying the shuttle is flying the shuttle. By having a payload commander, you could have someone paying special attention as the mission came together, helping to craft the overall flow of science on the flight without tripping up the pilot crew for no good reason. This is the last time that Thaggard will launch on the shuttle, but he'll actually be flying with us again a little bit down the road. Hmm, I wonder if that could be related to the big news out of Russia that I mentioned earlier. Next to Thaggard was Bill Reedy. William Reedy was born on January 24, 1952 in Quonset Point, Rhode Island, but considers himself to be from McLean, Virginia. He earned a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from the U.S. Naval Academy before joining the Navy to learn how to fly. He spent four years on the USS Forrestal, flying A-6 intruders around the North Atlantic and Mediterranean. He returned shoreside to attend the Naval Test Pilot School, sticking around to serve as an instructor before returning to another aircraft carrier, the USS Coral Sea. He joined NASA as a research pilot in October of 1986, where he was the program manager for the Shuttle Carrier Aircraft, the 747 that carried the orbiter around. He was selected as an astronaut in 1987, and this is his first of three flights. As you may have noticed, Reedy's career parallels that of his pilot Steve Oswald to a weird degree of similarity. U.S. Naval Academy, aircraft carriers, sometimes the same aircraft carrier, naval test pilot school, joining NASA as a pilot before being selected as an astronaut, flying three times, and, uh, let's see, yep, continuing on to work in NASA management. Funny how things work out sometimes. Moving downstairs to the mid-deck, we find Mission Specialist 3, Dave Hilmers, but that wasn't always the case. Originally, STS-33 astronaut Sonny Carter was expected to fly on the mission, but was killed in a commercial airplane crash before the flight. On April 5, 1991, Carter was flying for NASA Business on Atlantic Southeast Airlines Flight 2311, a small commuter flight with 20 passengers and 3 crew members on board. Due to a mechanical problem in the left-hand propeller control unit, the airplane suddenly rolled to the left until the wings were perpendicular to the horizon, then nosed down into the ground near Brunswick, Georgia. All aboard were killed. The entire crew of STS-42 were affected by the unexpected passing of their friend and crewmate. If you look at the STS-42 mission patch, you'll see a golden star just over the horizon, which was added to honor Carter. Hilmers flew in Carter's stead, making this his fourth and final flight. This flight also has a couple of payload specialists. One quick observation before introducing them. I noticed that ever since payload specialists began flying again, starting on STS-35, their names have been more integrated into the patches. Before the Challenger accident, the names of payload specialists were almost literally tacked onto the patches in their own little ribbon. 
This reflected the fact that they were usually added late in the process, when a patch was maybe already made, and the fact that they were sort of separate from the main crew. I didn't run this down to confirm, but my impression is that after the Challenger accident, the payload specialists were more integrated with the main crew. It's interesting to see this play out physically with their names on the mission patches. Payload Specialist 1 was Roberta Bondar. Roberta Bondar was born on December 4th, 1945 in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Thanks to podcast listener Jay for helping me with the pronunciation there. Bondar earned a bachelor's in zoology and agriculture, then three years later a master's in experimental pathology, then three years later a doctorate in neurobiology, and then three years later became a doctor of medicine. Which, wow, I'm impressed. She was one of six Canadian astronauts chosen in 1983 and has been eagerly awaiting for her chance to fly and training for this mission ever since. With this flight, she became the first Canadian woman to fly in space before leaving NASA to continue her research career. And last but certainly not least, payload specialist 2, Ulf Merbold. We last saw Merbold flying way back on STS-9, the first space lab mission and John Young's final flight. This mission makes Merbold the second of only eight payload specialists to fly more than once. And in fact, while this is his final shuttle mission, he'll later do a stint on the Russian space station Mir. But since that will happen before the shuttle Mir program gets going, we won't see him, and will instead bid farewell to Merbold on this flight. Whew, that's quite a crew introduction. I've been trying to keep these shorter, but sometimes when you've got a full crew of seven that each have interesting careers and interesting paths through the world of spaceflight... It's tough to restrain myself. As the crew walked across the gantry to their spacecraft on the morning of January 22, 1992, they were greeted by the mild Florida winter weather. Though I'm sure at least one of them found their thoughts returning to a much colder morning almost exactly six years before. STS-42 would become the first shuttle mission to fly during the Challenger anniversary. But there was no cause for concern, only mild annoyance, as a series of minor problems pushed back liftoff by just over an hour. Some minor pump hiccups, a potentially too high electrical field in the area that could lead to lightning, and high oxygen levels in the payload bay caused by cabin venting were among the small problems that cropped up and were worked one by one. At 9.52am and 33 seconds, Space Shuttle Discovery lifted off for the 14th time. After an uneventful ascent, the crew and orbiter found themselves in a 57-degree orbit 300 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Well, I say uneventful to mean that nothing unexpected happened, but it's easy to forget what a ridiculous event a shuttle launch really is. Pilot Oswald later said that SRB separation was, quote, something like an automobile accident. Today's flight was a space lab mission, the first flight of the International Microgravity Laboratory and there is a lot of science on the docket. To help get through it, the crew was split into two shifts, red and blue, allowing them to work around the clock. The crew was also split up by responsibilities, making a payload team and an orbiter team. This would ensure that everyone could focus on their primary task and that nothing would be missed. Just as you might expect, the payload team focused on cranking through the science, while the orbiter team ensured that the orbiter remained a safe and stable platform to complete that science. Soon after arriving on orbit, the red team started making preparations to go to bed while the blue team began to activate the laboratory. This was a pretty lengthy process, taking two and a half hours just to get the equipment running. Starting up each of the experiments would take longer still. For one thing, 11 lockers worth of materials and experiments had to be moved from the mid-deck 
down the long tunnel into the laboratory. These items were added late in the process, mere hours before liftoff, and I guess they decided to just have the crew move everything into position rather than go spelunking down into Space Lab again. As I mentioned, this flight had a lot of science experiments, with over 220 scientists from all around the world taking part. The 23-foot-long pressurized Space Lab module was packed with devices, chemicals, plants, and animals, and there were still more experiments on the middeck. I don't want this to just become a long and dull inventory of every experiment, so I'm going to try to just lightly touch on each area of investigation, with only a few detailed examinations of experiments. Overall, there are two main themes, which we're somewhat familiar with. In the first, the crew would try to take advantage of the weightless environment to do things that are impossible on Earth. And in the second, the crew would try to take advantage of the weightless environment to learn things that are impossible on Earth. For the doing experiments, weightlessness was explicitly a key part of the process, whether it was growing big crystals, studying delicately balanced critical point fluids, or making special alloys, these experiments sought weightlessness because gravity made these tasks more difficult, if not impossible. For the learning experiments, you could split it down one more level. Experiments that examine how humans are affected by weightlessness so that NASA could better prepare and protect future space crews, and experiments that use weightlessness as a tool to poke at a system. For example, the crew would be growing oat seeds and watching what direction their roots moved in, not in anticipation of some sort of vast oat farm flying in orbit. Instead, watching how systems behaved when the normally omnipresent force of gravity was removed helped show scientists what was going on under the hood, so to speak. All of these categories of experiments shared the fact that there was simply no way to perform them on the surface of the Earth. One line of inquiry was the ongoing examination of how the vestibular system reacts to space. Again, the vestibular system is a bunch of tiny structures inside your inner ear that react to accelerations and movements of your head in order to allow your brain to know where you are and how you're moving. It's basically your body's inertial measurement unit. These experiments fell into both sides of the learning category. Scientists were hoping to learn more about the vestibular system's reaction to space in order to help future astronauts adapt more easily to the weightless environment. But they were also examining how the brain reacted to the fact that the vestibular system was suddenly delivering completely garbage data in order to learn how it used that data under normal circumstances. The expectation was that the brain would be forced to throw out the vestibular data and rely more heavily on visual feedback. One experiment along these lines was called Microgravity Vestibular Investigations, or MVI. At the heart of MVI was an instrumented chair that could be rotated at various speeds on different axes. At its fastest setting, it would rotate at 120 degrees per second, completing a full rotation every three seconds. The engineers who built this system were mindful of how disastrous it would be if the chair were to spin out of control, literally, so a number of safety sensors were built in. One was a clever device that took advantage of the increasing centrifugal force as the chair spun faster. Once it spun fast enough, two pieces of metal would touch, closing a circuit and stopping the chair. Unfortunately, this was triggering early, preventing the experiment from reaching the top desired speed. After a bunch of troubleshooting, the fix was simple enough. The crew wedged a piece of Velcro into the switch, preventing it from closing. They figured that there were enough other safety systems that they could get away with this one being deactivated. After that, the chair worked with no problems. 
Along with payload specialist Roberta Bondar, Canada was also flying a number of experiments, including one examining the vestibular system. This was also a specialized chair, but instead of spinning around in different ways, it slid backwards and forwards on a rail. I don't really understand the science here, but the experiment was designed to suss out how the brain interpreted signals from tiny crystals in your inner ear called otoliths. The thought was that it would start to ignore them more and more over time. So while MVI looked at rotations, this mini-sled looked at linear movements. Though reading the description, I couldn't help but suspect that it was, in fact, some sort of prank on the crew. The crew would cover their lower legs in electrodes that both measured muscular responses and also applied electric shocks. Somehow the back-and-forth motion combined with the electric shocks was supposed to tell scientists how the inner ear worked. Science is weird. These experiments, along with a few others looking at the crew's perceptions, hoped to not only better understand how these systems worked on Earth, but help prevent some weird problems reported by other crews. Problems like being less aware of the positioning of their own arms and legs, or even weirder ones like the sensation that the floor was moving up and down. Moving on to the doing side of micro-experiments, we have another slew of devices dedicated to growing crystals. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Some of the crystal experiments were trying to grow large crystals of complex proteins so that the structure of the protein could be better understood. Some were trying to make large crystals for their own sake, since it was thought that they could be used in room temperature infrared detectors. One of these experiments, titled Vapor Crystal Growth Studies of Single Mercury Iodide Crystals, had a principal investigator who might sound familiar, Lodwick Vandenberg, who flew as a payload specialist back on STS-51B. A new apparatus, the Critical Point Facility, was flown to study the behavior of fluids under very specific conditions. Have you ever cooked something while up in the mountains? Maybe while camping, or maybe just while living in Colorado? If you have, you know that cooking instructions have to be tweaked a bit at higher altitudes. This is because materials don't just change from solid to liquid to gas based on their temperature, but also based on the local ambient pressure. If you're tricky about this and have fine control over your setup, you can change the pressure and temperature of a fluid vessel such that the fluid is right on the knife's edge between liquid and vapor. A variation of this is the triple point, where it's right on the edge between liquid, vapor, and solid, leading to the bizarre sight of a material trying and failing to do all three things at once. I encourage you to drop triple point into your video search engine of choice and take a look. Given how sensitive fluids are near the critical point, the critical point facility was able to control the temperature to within one thousandth of a degree, which is pretty nuts. In a sort of mini-experiment of its own, the apparatus was mostly controlled remotely from the ground, without much crew involvement. Two experiments that had plenty of crew involvement studied the bodies of the crew as the flight progressed. One, in the ongoing effort to better understand the redistribution of fluids in the human body and weightlessness, involved measuring the circumference of the crew's legs throughout the flight. Mission specialist Bill Reedy, for whatever reason, didn't think he would be all that affected by this phenomenon, so he was surprised to discover that his lower leg had lost a full inch of circumference. I'm not sure why he thought he wouldn't get the, as he put it, chicken legs, but it turns out that Reedy was human after all. Another experiment looking at the crew examined a common source of annoyance for folks arriving in space, back pain. 
Since people spend most of their day standing up or sitting upright in chairs, gravity helps push their spine down. Overnight, when you're lying in bed, the soft discs between your vertebrae are no longer squished down by gravity and expand slightly, making you a little bit taller in the morning. In space, this is taken to an extreme. The spines of the crew members would grow by around two and a half inches in just a few days. That much movement put a lot of strain on the muscles of the back as they tried to keep up, leading to significant back pain. By taking a series of stereoscopic 3D photographs of the crew's backs before, during, and after the flight, scientists hoped to nail down exactly how their spines were moving around. This would hopefully lead to better treatment options for future astronauts, as well as better understanding the causes of back pain in normal people on Earth. Life on board the shuttle proceeded calmly, smoothly, and, dare I say it, almost boringly. One of the mission's principal investigators said, quote, One could almost say it's gloriously monotonous. There are no surprises. We're getting good data. That doesn't always make for the most exciting podcast listening, but it's a sign of a nice and robust space program. The calm and smooth nature even extended into the physical realm. The orbiter was left in a gravity-gradient-stabilized attitude, with its tail facing down towards the Earth, in order to maintain stability for the experiments. And to prevent jostling those experiments, no treadmill was flown on this mission. Instead, the crew used an exercise bike and a sort of rowing machine. Even the view outside had a certain steadiness to it. Due to a combination of their orbital inclination and the time of year, the shuttle found itself with what's called a high beta angle. This basically meant that it was surfing right along on the Terminator, the line between day and night on the surface of the Earth. From the crew's point of view, this translated into no sunsets or sunrises, just the same stable lighting for days at a time. That stability was extended one more day, when partway through the mission, it was decided that the crew had saved enough resources to allow for one extra day of science. As is typical for astronauts, the crew were guilty of being workaholics. It was not uncommon for them to work through breaks, through meals, and even through parts of their sleep cycles. This wasn't quite intended by the folks on the ground, but it turns out there was a slight communication problem. The daily schedules never told the crews when to stop working, so they didn't. At one point, payload commander Norm Thagard made a special effort to get Roberta Bondar some free time at the windows. Thagard was on his third mission, but Bondar was a payload specialist and likely would not fly again. Unfortunately, the timing didn't really work out, so while I'm sure that Bondar will get a few minutes here and there of window time, when she found herself with a dedicated block of free time, the spacecraft had been oriented, with the windows facing nothing but deep space. Oh well. Oh, and while we're talking about the view out the windows, it's worth mentioning that partway through the flight, mission specialist Reedy took a moment and watched the Russian space station Mir zip by at a range of around 70 kilometers. Throughout the mission, the memory of their former crewmate Sonny Carter stayed with the crew. Carter was a lifelong fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team, often seen in a Dodgers hat. The crew took day-long turns wearing Carter's Dodgers hat as they went about their duties, in a nice little tribute. Other than a couple of minor hiccups with some experiments, there really weren't any in-flight anomalies to speak of. Probably the most significant one was when the handle broke off of the waste collection system, aka space turlet. The fix was simple enough, though, even if it was a little bit on the redneck engineering side. The crew opened up a panel in the side of the WCS and clamped a pair of pliers or something onto the flush mechanism. New handle, no problem. 
And just like redneck engineering, if it looks stupid but works, it ain't stupid. One other moment that got the crew's hearts going was on flight day 7, when a loud pop resonated throughout the orbiter, leaving the structure vibrating. Engineers weren't completely sure what had happened, but whatever it was had also happened back on STS-9, the first flight of Space Lab. After analyzing it, they were pretty sure that the alarming sound was caused by some movement of a joint in the crew transfer tunnel, and nothing to worry about. However, I think I know the real truth. This loud metallic bang only happened on STS-9 and STS-42, and Ulf Merbold was the only person to fly on both missions? I think we've got it. Ulf Merbold is a robot. Spread the word. Even extended missions eventually come to a close. I'm sure that the science-minded payload crew would have been happy to stay on orbit for another few days, but even with careful use of onboard resources, they can only go on for so long. As the flight drew to a close, the crew packed away the experiments and carefully prepared Space Lab to return to Earth. One crew member said, quote, Coming down the tunnel for the last time was kind of nostalgic, like saying goodbye to an old friend. Space Lab performed flawlessly throughout the whole mission. Today's landing destination would be Edwards Air Force Base, though it's not entirely clear to me why. One source said that it was due to the high weight of Space Lab, and indeed, Discovery's landing weight was around 10,000 kilograms greater than Atlantis on the previous mission. But that doesn't really track for me, since what would be the plan in the case of a return to launch site abort? In that unlikely occurrence, Discovery would have had to land at the Kennedy Space Center anyway. An explanation that makes a little more sense to me was that the crew would continue to undergo medical tests for further three days after landing. My guess is that since Edwards is usually a safe bet on landing weather, it would make sense to just plan on using it from the beginning and move the medical equipment and support personnel there. Whatever the reason, Discovery appeared in the skies over Edwards Air Force Base on a gorgeous January morning, continuing on to a nice smooth landing. STS-42 was 8 days, 1 hour, 14 minutes, and 44 seconds in duration, and was a complete success. Just to give you an idea of how much science they got done, my estimate is that I probably only touched on maybe 20% of the experiments. This was a seriously productive flight. Between the massive amount of science, the international cooperation, and the new crew roles, this flight really gave a taste for how operations on the future International Space Station might look. But for now, that's still a ways off. Next time, Discovery enters the shop for a lengthy maintenance period, but Atlantis is already back in the launch pad with another payload bay full of Space Lab gear. Where STS-42 carry pressurized experiments, STS-45 will be using the unpressurized Space Lab pallets. There are so many experiments, you'll need an atlas to keep track. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.